Good evening. This is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. According to a report in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the State Elections Commission has removed instructions to local clerks which previously allowed ballot drop boxes. This action complies with last week's ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court that the freestanding mailbox-like drop boxes would no longer be allowed outside of a local clerk's office. The ruling went into effect after Tuesday's spring primary. The drop boxes were initially installed during the most intense period of the pandemic in November 2020 so that voters would not have to go to crowded polling places. Under a new proposal from GOP legislator Ryan Zimmerman, consumers would be able to check if data collectors and processors are harvesting their personal information. They would also be able to correct errors, demand the deletion of their personal data, and prohibit the selling of it. The bill would apply to larger businesses and companies that derive more than half their gross revenues from the sale of consumer data. Many of the state's retail organizations, including Quick Trip, the Wisconsin Grocers Association, and the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, oppose the bill. Companies have complained that it would be burdensome to comply with the regulation. The Microsoft Corporation, as well as the conservative political advocacy group Americans for Prosperity, support the bill. The legislature's election investigator, Michael Gableman, has withdrawn his subpoena seeking emails and other communications from the immigration rights group Voces de la Frontera. Voces de la Frontera action went to court last month seeking to block Gableman's subpoena, which also sought information on the group's finances and contacts with government officials. According to a report in the Wisconsin State Journal, the organization issued a statement Wednesday celebrating Gableman's unconditional surrender. These arbitrary subpoenas are a baseless partisan effort from Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Uh, This is a quote. These arbitrary subpoenas are a baseless partisan effort from Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and the far right to spread lies about the 2020 election, says Voces de la Frontera Action Executive Director Christine Newman-Ortiz. Although although there were no primaries in Madison yesterday, there were in numerous places elsewhere in the state. School board elections were the focus of the most intense political controversies in response to COVID-19 rules and education for racial awareness. Locally, voters in the Mount Horeb School District selected six candidates to move forward to the April balloting. Three of the candidates are viewed as opponents of the district's COVID and race education policies, and three are supporters. Voters in Milwaukee gave interim mayor Chevy Johnson 42% of the vote, with a conservative opponent garnering only 22%. If he prevails in the general election, Johnson will be the first elected black mayor of Milwaukee. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,602 confirmed cases of the virus in Wisconsin yesterday, with 8.9% of all tests coming back positive. Wisconsin also had 14 deaths from the virus yesterday, bringing the total number of deaths in the state to 11,654. Here in Dane County, there were 276 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, and 80 people are still hospitalized with the virus. Meanwhile, the Dane County mask mandate is set to end at the beginning of March. 
And today, UW system officials announced that the campus-wide mask mandates are slated to end as soon as March 1st, and no later than the start of spring break. And those are the headline stories for this evening. On to the rest of the day's news now. Governor Tony Evers was back live in person at the state capitol last night to deliver his fourth State of the State address. WORT reporter Layla Ma has the story. During his more than 45-minute speech, Governor Evers pointed to a projected budget surplus and the state's low unemployment rate. Two years after the pandemic lockdown caused a skyrocketing unemployment rate of 15 percent, Evers touted the state's current unemployment low of 2.8 percent, lower than even pre-pandemic levels. So we've invested nearly $60 million in the 12 regionally-based programs to meet the unique needs of different communities. And after workers lost their jobs during the pandemic, we invested $20 million to help thousands of workers get new skills and training to find new jobs. Evers called on the GOP legislature to act on his plan to deliver $150 checks to every taxpayer, saying he would be calling a special session for lawmakers to consider the plan. However, special session only required that the legislature meet to consider legislation on the topic. It would not require lawmakers to take any specific action, and Republican lawmakers have pushed back on the plan. Last night, Evers also urged lawmakers to act on his plans to invest in education, emergency services, and mental health. Evers proposed investing $30 million in additional funding to local governments to fund emergency medical services, largely in rural communities. In Wisconsin, we rely on nearly 800 emergency medical service providers. More than half are either operated exclusively by volunteers or through a combination of volunteers and paid staff. Since 2011, state aid to communities has gone down even as the costs have gone up. Help from the state was cut by more than 9%, while public safety costs have increased more than 16%. Between these rising costs and lack of available staffing, some have even gone without ambulance services, left with no other option but to hope and rely on neighboring providers. The former principal and state superintendent of schools mentioned kids at least 21 times during his speech, calling for more investment in public education. Also, Governor Evers promised to extend the University of Wisconsin system's long-running tuition freeze for another year. So tonight, I'm announcing I'm providing a $25 million investment in our University of Wisconsin system so that they can use these dollars to fund the tuition freeze through the end of this biennium. With these additional funds, the UW system and Board of Regents can ensure that tuition prices for our in-state students will not go up for the next two years, giving our students and families one less thing to worry about. During his speech, Governor Evers also recognized what he called extraordinary efforts of the Wisconsin National Guard during the pandemic, helping to distribute COVID-19 vaccines and administer testing sites. Citing the toll of these efforts, Governor Evers announced an investment of $5 million into the mental health program for National Guard members. These folks have stepped up to serve our state time and time again during one of the direst periods of our state's history. 
and their service has not come without a cost, emotionally, physically, and mentally. Republican Senate Majority Leader Devin LaMahieu delivered Republican response last night during his rebuttal. LaMahieu took aim at Governor Evers, criticizing Evers' response to the pandemic, Black Lives Matter protest, and his soft on crime approach. He even took aim at education under Evers' administration. Governor Evers refuses to act while people around the state suffer. That is not the strong leadership Wisconsin needs. Kids and parents have struggled mightily to deal with repeated school closures and lost learning over these past two years. It's gotten so bad that 60 percent of fourth graders in Wisconsin now can't read proficiently at grade level. Parents are demanding better from their schools, but Governor Evers has called our parental empowerment bills radical and pledged to veto them, keeping kids in failing schools and keeping parents at arm's length. Governor Evers returned to addressing lawmakers and other permanent officials in person this year after delivering last year's address virtually. It is also Evers' last address of his four-year term as the race for governor heads towards us in November. Reporting for WORT News, M. Lama. How many state employees does it take to change a light bulb? While it may sound like the start of a bad joke, WORT decided to ask after rumors circulated online. It turns out, just one. But that position has seen major changes as the Capitol building began transitioning to LED lights in 2019. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. How exactly do you go about lighting the giant state Capitol building? A few weeks back, a post popped up on Reddit claiming that a single person was in charge of changing every light bulb in the state capitol building. Intrigued by the rumor, I began to ask around to find out more. It turns out, it's true. There is one person within the capitol whose job it is to change all of the light bulbs throughout the building. But over the last three years, the landscape of the job has changed dramatically. Darren Smith is the building and ground superintendent at the capitol building, and Jason Riddle is a assistant director of building management with the Department of Administration. When I spoke with them, they said the individual who changes the state capitol light bulbs did not wish to be named. So while we may not know her name, we do at least know some of her story. The woman started sometime in the mid-80s, according to Smith and Riddle, and it is indeed her job to change all the light bulbs around the Capitol grounds, as well as to attend to the clocks around the building. While this is not all she does all day, they say it does take up around 70% of her time. At first glance, the job of changing light bulbs seems ridiculous, but when you think about the tens of thousands of light bulbs in and around the Wisconsin Capitol building, it starts to click. Smith and Riddle estimate that on an average day, she would change anywhere from 10 to 50 light bulbs. That's a pretty big difference, but that's because not all light bulbs are built the same. There are some fixtures that are so challenging to get to, they require putting on a fall protection harness and clipping into rigging and then going out onto precarious ledges to safely be able to change those lamps. So on days like that, uh, it's going to be a lot less because there's a lot more involved. And then there are other days where they might be replacing lamps in the basement where they can be easily accessed with a a six-foot ladder. Years ago, prior to the restoration era changes, the assembly chamber uh, has what's called pearlites at the very top. They ring, they ring the, the chamber. 
But during the restoration, we created a system that allows them to be dropped from the top via cable. So we can bring them all the way down, change them one at a time, and now we don't have to, we literally have to set up a lift that would straddle the desks to get up there. It was really a pain. So those were probably the most challenging and that we've, we've gotten through now. Starting in around 2019, the job of changing light bulbs changed. That's when the Capitol began their transition to LED lights. The Capitol building has been using fluorescent lights for decades after transitioning away from the old Edison bulbs in the 1960s. The idea to move to LED lights began in 2015, which turned into a long, drawn-out process to figure out exactly which lights were best. But of course, it's not as easy as just changing the lights from fluorescent to LED lights. The biggest challenge comes from exactly how the lights are fixed. The current fluorescent bulbs use what is called a ballast, which helps to connect the bulb to the electrical system. These ballasts are set directly in the light fixture itself, which becomes a problem when they move to LED bulbs, which do not use the pre-installed ballasts. That means that, at least most of the time, when they move to use new LED bulbs, an electrician must be brought in to uninstall the ballast and rewire the light fixture itself to allow for the LED bulbs to be screwed in. The electrician comes in about once a week these days to change out fixtures and help to install the LED bulbs. This electrician is not directly a state employee, but is the sole person the capital contracts to do the job. If this sounds like a drawn-out, complicated process, well, that's because it is. Smith and Riddle say that the cost and the logistics of setting up the new bulbs is the biggest factor for the slow process. In total, they say that they've replaced only around 20% of the bulbs in the capital so far. But so there's just been kind of a slow rollout. We have we do have some some ideas and things earmarked that we want to do in bulk, in turn inside the building uh, and uh, and outside, I guess. So we're still working through some bigger projects. But in general, if we have a fluorescent lamp uh, that has lived its life or the ballast that drives it, we're replacing it at that at that point. So we're not ordering a lot of fluorescent mm -hmm. lamps these days because. As, as they need to be replaced, we're replacing them. Despite the slow rollout, the move to LED comes with perks, such as their long lifespan. While exact figures are hard to determine in the capital due to the many different types of light bulbs they use, they say that LED bulbs can last anywhere from 10 to 30 times longer than fluorescent lights. This means that they have to spend much less time changing those bulbs, which they say saves a massive amount of labor costs. The other big difference between bulbs is the energy saved with LED bulbs. They began replacing the bulbs in the capital dome first due to the fact that that it would be such a large and time-consuming project. It also helps them easily get an idea of how much energy can be saved with LED lights. So the probably the fastest way to look at that is just looking at the dome lights um, because those were very bright uh, and very energy intensive. And so with that transition between the metal halide and the LED fixtures, there is a 60% reduction in energy cost from just by making that transition. So that's a big savings. Now those are really big, really bright LED fixtures compared to those that are lighting up offices. And uh, so we'll see more savings as we make those transitions in office areas as well. And so that was part of our justification for making the transition for the LED fixtures for the exterior of the dome because payback was just under 15 years. So what does this mean for our mysterious woman in charge of state capitals lighting? 
Don't worry, she won't be out of the job because, again, changing light bulbs is not all she does. But as the capital slowly switches from fluorescent to LED bulbs, the number of lights that need replacing will drastically reduce. Smith and Riddle say they anticipate the capital to be fully switched to LED lights in the next two years. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. And the time is now 6.22, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. <clears throat> well, audiophiles lament. Earlier this week, Sugar Shack record, uh, Records announced that the venerable institution would close at the end of April unless the store can find a new owner after more than 40 years in Madison. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wuggiehaupt sat down with John Gary John Feast, the owner of Sugar Shack Records, to talk about the history of the business and why it is shutting down now. I'm on the line with Gary John Feast, owner of Sugar Shack Records. Gary, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Thank you. So... I do want to get to what happens next in a second here, but first let's talk about the history of Sugar Shack Records. When did it begin and what has changed in the business from that time? Well, I opened in September of uh, 1981 uh, on Monroe Street um, and I only had records. Uh, and I was only there for a couple of months before I moved to uh, 431 West Gorham, right at the bend where Gorham turns into University Avenue. And I was there from 1981 to 89. And during the time there, I began uh, having uh, cassette tapes and VHS tapes and uh, CDs. And uh, and then I moved to a uh, space uh, on Mifflin Street across from the library downtown. And then from there to the 100 block of State Street and from there to the 500 block of State Street. And in 2003, I moved out here to Atwood Avenue. So you've you've certainly sort of been all around the city then. So and you've met a whole lot of people doing that sure. as well. So I want to ask: Are there any particular moments over the last forty-one-ish years that stand out to you? Um, well, it was it's it was, it's always fun having you know some celebrities stop in the store, uh, bands who were were playing in town or something. Uh, um, I guess one moment that stands out: I opened on September eleventh, nineteen eighty-one. So. There was no 20-year anniversary party or anything, so so that day kind of stands out, but it stands out for everybody. Um, yeah, other than that, uh, I guess a couple of times when people brought, bought big piles of things, uh, somebody once bought $700 worth of records, and uh, another time somebody bought all of my $2 records, which accounted to about, uh, I don't know, three or $400, so... So you're leaving your business and you're looking for a new buyer, correct? Let's get into that. Yeah. Why are you looking at a buyer and what is making you leave? Well, I, uh, the, the landlord, landladies, uh, a couple of sisters, sold the building um, just uh, in January. And so the new owners want to put their own business in this space. So I have to be out by April 30th. And I have to ask, because not only are you leaving, but B-Sides Records on State Street is also possibly closing up shop as well. So what do you sort of see for the future of small record shops here in Madison? Well, Steve's not closing up B-Side. He's going to stay open somewhere. 
just has probably has to find a new location. And he's been in that spot for like 39 years. Um, <clears throat> whereas I'm uh, too old to move this much stuff, so that's why I'm hoping somebody else wants to buy it and move it somewhere. Um, but uh, I just uh, my knees won't let me do that. You mentioned a little bit earlier on that it was sometime in the 90s that you started to move away from just records into VHS tapes, cassette tapes, and now you have movies, uh, DVDs, and things like that. What sort of what sort of spurred you to sort of diversify from just records to all sort of physical media like that? Well, cassettes and VHS tapes came in in uh, probably the early 80s and CDs in the mid-80s, mid 85, 86, something like that, um, and then pretty much took over until the, till the, till around the turn of the millennium. But, uh, but I uh, just was, I, I, I spent about 25 years going to garage sales looking for inventory. Uh, this is almost all used stuff here at the used record store, and, uh, and I would just find people selling uh, cassettes and VHS tapes and figured that would uh, make sense to have that in the inventory as well. And then uh, DVDs, uh, I don't remember when they came around, around the turn of the millennium as well, I guess. No, it was in the, in the 90s, I think. I can't remember. Anyway, um, yeah, so I, uh, mo- mo- music and movies, basically, is what I have here. So, in sort of speaking on that point, VHS tapes and cassette tapes, now records are definitely, those are sort of back in style, but have you seen any sort of resurgence for records, or for cassette tapes, I should say, and VHS tapes? Are those starting to come back as well, or are those just sort of still there and have a market, but a much smaller one? Well, it is a much smaller market, but but just in the last probably year and a half, two years, uh, sales have picked up on those. Uh, people, are, people are buying them again. So, I mean, it's kind of a surprise to me, but... Uh, but I'm happy with it. I've still got a bunch of cassettes and VHS tapes. All right, Gary, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us here today? Um, well, just that I'm, uh, I'm going to spend about the next three weeks hoping to find somebody to buy the store. Otherwise, I'm just going to have to pull what I can, what I think I can sell online, and have some big sales, and then liquidate the rest of the inventory, because i got to be out of here by April 30th. So, uh there's a lot of stuff here. I moved from State Street in 2003 from a 600-square-foot space to this 1,200-square-foot space, and I filled it up. So I've got a lot of, lot of stuff here, a lot of, uh, lot of inventory and a lot of equipment, um, still, uh, display cases and such. I've been speaking with Gary John Feast, the owner of Sugar Shack Records, which will be closing down later this year in April. Gary, thank you so much, not only for talking with me today, but for everything that you've brought to the community as well. Well, thank you, and thank WRT for what you've brought to the community. I I think I discovered WRT in uh, 1980, and I've been listening to it ever since. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. A new art gallery opens in McFarland with Artful Encounters. A state crackdown on UW-Madison's Daily Cardinal with Madison in the 60s. And the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with Rob McClure. But first, we'll take another break and check back in on the world headlines from the BBC. Stay tuned.
And the the time is now coming up just on 6.34 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Even as many businesses shuttered their doors during the pandemic, one art gallery in McFarland opened its doors. On this edition of Artful Encounters, feature contributors Gabrielle Javier Cerulli joins Falwell Gallery owners Nikki and Kristen at the gallery for a tour. Hello, I'm Gabrielle Javier Cerulli with Artful Encounters. I visited the new Falwell Art Gallery in McFarland, Wisconsin. The space offers natural light, perfect for showcasing the different kinds of art. The space is not pretentious, nor off-putting, nor stuffy, and neither are the welcoming owners, Kristen and Nikki. What was the impetus to open the gallery? Realistic. Uh, But there was one day last summer, it was in June, we happened to be driving by this space, and I said, let's call the landlords. And we came in here, and there was sawdust on the floors. You could see the beams were exposed. It was completely unfinished, but it had all of this gorgeous natural light. And I felt like a gallery was meant to be in the space. And so why did you pick uh, McFarland? You know, honestly, we just moved to McFarland a few years ago, and it's an amazing community. But the one thing it's lacking is a lot of businesses. Um, A lot of the people in the area have really wanted more businesses to open up. So they keep building more houses here. I think McFarland's going to expand a lot in the coming years. So I kind of think more businesses are going to come in. I know that's a priority for, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and the city, I think, is to to get more business owners. So I'm, we're kind of hoping we're jumping in when the time is right. All right. And so, and so this is your community, and your kids go to school here. Yes. Yeah. Right. So this yes. is yes. – and so you walk in, and you're, you're, you're immediately struck with that there are different things. There are, there's glass. There's jewelry. There's paintings. We have close to 45 artists, most of whom are from at least the state of Wisconsin. Uh, You know, we have, I would say, about a third from Dane County, another third from the Wisconsin area, and then another third from all over the country. We've got some people from Montana and Iowa and Michigan. Michigan, (laughs) yeah, so um, a little bit of everywhere. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the artists? I definitely appreciate is uh, Frank Norty. He is from uh, Richland Center. So he's right outside of Madison. He's been in the U.S. for about seven years. And can you spell his last name? It's N-O-R-T-E-I-N-O-R-T-E-Y. He spells it two different ways. Oh, (laughs) fair enough. Um, And Frank is just a prolific artist. He creates a lot of abstract work. He creates um, work that's is very surreal as well. He has some very realistic portraits of both women and animals. Um, So he speaks to a lot of people. Um, Other artists that I really like, we've got uh, Sandy Weissach, who creates uh, these beautiful landscapes using the wet felting technique. Um, She goes on top of her pieces and adds uh, silk and embroidery and stitching on top. So there's an additional level of detail there. We have a lot of traditional artists where we have Dave Hiller, who's in the Monticello area. 
We've got King of Johnson, who is located in Sun Prairie and creates a variety of planters and paintings using alcohol ink with gold paint on top of them. While I was at Fallwall Gallery, customers were coming in and out. I was able to speak to a local resident about this new addition to her community. Sure, my name is Katie Pedersen and I am a McFarland resident. I am purchasing uh, much more than I came in for. (laughs) I came in for a gift for a friend and I'm also um, getting one for myself. Some beautiful oil decanters and uh, some glass blown glasses. Those are gorgeous. They're beautiful. And then what was that that wood piece you got there? That is a Queen Anne's lace. It's a beautiful carving and it's it spoke to me. Who's That's the artist on that? Baby Joe Carroll. He's from uh, the UP. Oh, he's a uh, UP. Yeah, nice. Well, they're gorgeous. How do you feel about having Fallout Gallery in your neighborhood? Oh, I'm thrilled. It's, it'll be wonderful to have something new to stop in and see what's new each week. Uh, it seems like, like they have a lot of new things every couple of days. Yeah. Um, the economic development is good to see. We appreciate it. Say people purchase, they can, can they all, is there an online system as well? Yes, we <laughs> do have a website. Um, it's farwellgallery.com and we do offer free local delivery um, and we also ship anywhere in the U.S. Added a gift registry onto the website, so if you see stuff you want, you can make a registry and then tell your special someone or that's family awesome. or whatever yeah. to go check that out. <laughs> How is your gallery space uh, different than other ones? I think compared to other ones in the area, I think we have perhaps more of a variety of functional art. That we have several artists here that have never shown in a gallery before. So that's one thing that for me, I don't necessarily care about an artist's resume. It's more about how their work speaks to me and how I feel this community would react to it. What else do you have going on? Yeah, we want this space to be beyond a gallery, a community gathering space where anyone can come. So the second Thursday of the month, uh, we are having a free coffee hour between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. where anyone is welcome. There's no pressure to purchase because technically we're closed during that time and we just hang out and talk about art um, and whatever else is on your mind. And you set up table and chairs or... Yes, oh, okay. uh, set up table and chairs. I provide the coffee and creamer so <laughs> that, you know, people can have a nice cup of coffee, uh, get to know each other. And see the space. Yeah. What else you got going on? Uh, we have just started advertising classes. Uh, we have two watercolor classes scheduled in the month of March. Unfortunately, they are sold out. They sold out within two days. Yay! <laughs> Yes, which is exciting. And we have two other events um, that are scheduled in March, uh, one on March 6th and the other on March 20th, which is a Sunday from 1 p.m. till about 2.30. Uh, One of our artists is going to be teaching uh, a jelly printing uh, technique where you will walk away with three 
affirmation magnets. I do artist talks as well. Oh. I know uh, one of our wood turners has said that he'd be willing to do a demonstration sometime. So check out our website for upcoming events. And, and social media as well. Our uh, Farwell Gallery on Instagram is at uh, Farwell Gallery. And the Facebook page is just Farwell Gallery. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Are you the only Farwell Gallery? Yeah, we are. Farwell Gallery. Isn't that surprising? Isn't that crazy? Well, we're on Farwell Street. (laughs) Thank you, Nikki and Kristen Ellis, for your time and the tour of your new gallery in McFarland. This was another segment of Artful Encounters with Gabrielle Javier Cerulli. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, as dark and portentous looking as the sky turned this afternoon, we had a hard time squeezing much in the way of moisture out of it. In the end, we managed a scant five hundredths of an inch, which at least has taken us back towards 15% of our normal precipitation for the month, a a figure I suppose we need to be grateful for considering how dry we've been over the past seven weeks, and we're at just about 20% of our normal moisture for the year so far. Well, the abrupt warm-up this morning and the subsequent cool-down we're seeing this afternoon are playing out pretty much as it had looked back on Monday. Our overnight jump in temperatures last night was largely down to a southerly low-level jet that got activated late last evening and was howling along at 60 or 70 miles per hour, just two or 3,000 feet overhead during much of the night. Do the math, and you can see that it was air that was down over Mississippi or Arkansas late yesterday that ended up here this morning. That transported air does lose some of its heat on the way up, and uh, mixing it downward towards snow-covered ground is not the best way to preserve its energy, but we still made it up to 46 degrees this afternoon, which was as warm as we've been since back on the 24th of December. The forecast going forward also remains largely unchanged from what we foresaw a few days ago, with the this afternoon's passing cold front making it to about southern Illinois or so by tomorrow afternoon, which is when the wave of low pressure that we once hoped might bring us a snow here tomorrow passes uneventfully instead, at least for us, with a little more than perhaps just a slight uptick in high and mid-level clouds here, though uh, areas far to the southeast of Madison may see a few flurries late tomorrow from this. After that, we'll continue the same uh, forecast trajectory, basically, that we've been seeing for, well, quite a while now, with a lot of quick passing systems coming up, each one missing us, of course, to the north or south, and a lot of uh, consequent toing and froing in the temperatures as those low-pressure circulations each drag in a new round of Arctic air behind them. The next two systems are going to both be passing in the polar branch of the upper jet up to our north, The first is coming Friday and then another on Sunday. The first one may throw us some, perhaps some scattered light snow showers as its cold front presses south across the area. This will be Friday evening. The second system will likely keep its precipitation confined uh, just far northern Wisconsin, though its cold front will stall either near or perhaps even north of the area going into Monday as a southern stream system starts to take shape out to our west and begins trying to back our surface wind southerly again early next week. So we should stay mild in any case from about mid-weekend out through Monday. 
And how that Southern Stream system then evolves going into next week is unclear still at this point, but we may have a couple of waves of low pressures it looks passing to our south this coming week. And the early maps are looking somewhat promising. I won't say anything more on the topic at all in order not to jinx it, so uh, we'll see what comes of it. But back to tonight, spotty precipitation should continue to work east and southeast out of the area over the coming few hours, and temperatures will descend through the 30s to the low 20s, possibly even the upper teens by morning on veering northwest to north winds, which will come up uh, through the night uh, to 10 to 17 miles per hour. I think this incoming Arctic air is going to dry most of the damp surfaces out there before we reach freezing, but there could be some iciness in some spots anyway later in the night. Tomorrow we'll see some lifting of the cloud cover, but we're likely to retain a lot of the passing mid and high clouds from that system just to our south through the day. The cloud cover will be higher and thinner to the north of Madison and lower and thicker to the south and southeast. Temperatures will not recover much, if at all, from the morning low unless we get at least some lifting and breaking in the skies, in which case we may get into the low 20s. Otherwise, we'll hang up just around 20, I think, on brisk northerly winds tomorrow, 12 to 17 miles per hour, and perhaps gusty at times. Skies will lift as we go into the overnight, and with some clearing and subsiding of the northwesterly winds, we're likely to drop towards zero by Friday morning, at least if the winds come down enough, otherwise low single digits. We'll see winds backing southwesterly again early Friday as the first of the weekend systems approaches to our northwest. Temperatures will will respond back towards 30 degrees for a high on Friday with southwesterly winds increasing to 12 to 20 miles per hour by the end of the day. Some lowering of clouds is likely late day as the cold front approaches and passes. And a round of flurries is not out of the question in the late afternoon or evening hours. Temperatures will drop back towards about 10 overnight as winds veer west and northwest and stay uh, quite active, 10 to 20 miles per hour through much of the night. The winds will start to come down towards Saturday morning. And Saturday we'll again see some modest warming back up towards the lower mid-20s as winds back already nominally south again between systems. And those southerly winds will then ramp up overnight going into Sunday, maybe kind of in a similar fashion to what we saw last night. And Sunday, we should see uh, above freezing temperatures in the morning, probably rising to the upper 40s again, the way it's looking. At the moment, at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 36 degrees. The dew point temperature is 34. Uh, We're overcast at about 2,000 feet. Winds are light out of the northwest currently, about 3 miles per hour. And the barometer is rising steadily at this point at 29.80 inches of mercury.
It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to February 1965 when a powerful state senator went after the UW Daily Cardinal. Madison's first ongoing organization against the war in Vietnam was founded and high school student Jean Parks gave a speech. Stu Levitan has the details from 57 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, February 1965 As the month begins, an attack on the UW student newspaper The Daily Cardinal by a prominent conservative commentator and powerful state senator backfires and ends with the governor, regents, and administration giving strong support for the newspaper. On January 28th, right-wing radio talker Bob Segrist reveals that Cardinal Managing Editor John Gruber rents a room at 515 West Johnson Street from Gene Dennis, Jr., the son of the late head of the Communist Party USA, and that another renter, Michael Eisenscher, was both the son of the former chair of the state Communist Party and a communist himself. And Segrist claims to see a disturbing pattern of the Cardinal covering the same stories as the Communist Party's Daily Worker. The next day, Republican State Senator Jerris Leonard writes Regent President Arthur DeBartle-Baden that he's, quote, very much disturbed to learn about Gruber's rooming house relationship, quote, with known political leftists, a situation he says, quote, has reached the point of absurdity, clearly appalling. Denouncing what he considers the Cardinal's left-oriented journalism, Leonard calls on the regents to investigate Mr. Gruber's associations and intensively review the editorial policy of the Cardinal and respond to the governor and legislature. If it is determined that Mr. Gruber's reported association influences the political tone of the Cardinal, Leonard writes, it is clear that his removal must be sought. As assistant majority leader and chair of the powerful State Building Commission, which controls major university construction, Leonard issues a not-so-veiled threat that if the regents don't investigate and report back within two weeks, he will call for a special legislative committee to study this matter and, quote, take appropriate action. As Segrist hammers away every night of the Cardinal staff and their friends, campus groups of all stripes rush to the paper's defense, including the Young GOP and Interfraternity Council. When the regents meet on February 5th, it's Leonard's letter, not Gruber's housing, that they find clearly appalling. Democrats and Republicans alike, labor leaders and industrialists, denounce what one calls a witch hunt and another equates with McCarthyism. Then they unanimously adopt a resolution that Regent Kenneth L. Greenquist, a former state commander of the American Legion, likens to the famed sifting and winnowing statement from 1894. Blustery right-wing state Senator Gordon Roselip tries to get the House Un-American Activities Committee to investigate. At the same time, he demands a free subscription for all legislators. But Governor Warren Knowles, a Republican, ends the controversy by endorsing the regent's actions a few days later. This is America, he says. Let's continue to have the right of free speech and free press. 
Days after the regents stand up for free press, the American bombing of North Vietnam on February 7th sparks the creation of Madison's first ongoing anti-war protest organization, the Committee to End the War in Vietnam. On February 8th, the executive councils of both the university's Young Democrats and Young Republicans adopt resolutions endorsing the bombing. On February 9th, about 250 students march through freezing rain and an occasional hostile snowball from campus to the Capitol for a rally sponsored by a group organized by sophomore Daniel B. Friedlander. It calls itself the Ad Hoc Committee for Peace in Vietnam. Among the speakers, Professors William Gorham Rice, Joseph Elder, Francis T. Ahole, and Maurice Zeitlin. John Coatsworth, who violated the travel ban to Cuba in 1963, moderates the rally which also features Hillel Foundation Director Rabbi Richard W. Winograd and mayoral candidate William Osborne Hart. But leaders of the existing major campus organizations, including the Wisconsin Student Association, Memorial Union, Associated Women Students, and Interfraternity Council, issue a statement afterward declaring that a majority of the students, quote, would not condemn the government for its recent actions in Vietnam. Madison police film and photograph the rally from second-floor balcony in the Capitol, ostensibly for training purposes. Some civil libertarians raise concerns, but council conservatives block all attempts to question police chief Wilbur Emery on the full purpose or use of the films and photographs. The overt intelligence gathering soon becomes covert, with systematic police infiltration of the anti-war movement. On February 12th and 13th, the group, now calling itself the Committee to End the War in Vietnam, stages a 24-hour vigil on the Capitol steps, maintaining between 50 and 100 demonstrators through the 13-degree night. Several participants, including Liz Dennis and Stu Ewan, pass the time singing old rock and roll songs with new anti-war lyrics, while Professor William Appleman Williams, whose reputation as a revisionist historian of American diplomatic history was what brought Coatsworth to Wisconsin, shares a flask with sociology grad student Evan Stark. Two students are arrested and charged with disorderly conduct for pelting the picketers with snowballs. There are no other incidents as a Saturday rally of more than 300 and another night's vigil capped the week's events. The weekend vigils continue for about two months. Friedlander and undergraduate history student Jim Hawley, who had created a stir by attending the 1962 founding convention of Students for Democratic Society as a 16-year-old member of a Communist Front youth group, registered the Committee to End the War in Vietnam as a university student organization on February 25th. Led back and forth by students associated with the Communist and Socialist Worker Parties, the committee is the main anti-war group for about the next two years, primarily leafleting, holding meetings and rallies, with some members engaging in disruptive protests. The East Side was where Madison's mass transit system began in 1892, and it's where the Madison Bus Company's three-month experiment in express bus service starts on February 22nd, between the Capitol Square and South Stoughton and Buckeye Roads, with only nine stops and none between the square and the intersection of Milwaukee Street and North Stoughton Road. The trip takes about 20 minutes. Adult fare is 25 cents coming downtown, 30 cents going home. The route is soon serving close to 200 riders per day on nine round trips, 
popular enough that the company adds a bigger bus, and the City and Public Service Commission approve a west side route to Nakoma Road and Midville Boulevard. That service will start once the widening of West Washington Avenue from Proudfit to Park Street, part of the Triangle and Brittingham Urban Renewal Projects, is completed in late September. And as the month ends, Robert M. LaFollette High School senior Eugene Parks, president of the Madison Youth Council, concludes the First Baptist Church's 18th annual youth series with a talk on, quote, the courage to be a real leader. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Layla Ma. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Gabrielle Javier Cerulli and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan mixed our sounds ever so smoothly this evening, live on the air. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.